0: But before we begin looking at the passage, I want us to to see, before we, we start, that there have always been divisions in Christ's church from the earliest days. We see that in the book of Acts, and we see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So the church wasn't divided, first divided in 1517 with the Reformation or the papal schism from 1378 to 1418 or the split of Western Christianity from Eastern Orthodoxy in 1054. On the contrary, each church is split down the middle between those who want a social club that exists for the benefit of its members and those who eagerly desire the glory of the Lord Jesus and are willing to suffer for it. And I think if we're honest, we can get even more fine-grained than that. Straight down the heart of every Christian in this room, there is a heart, half a heart aflame to God and half a heart obsessed with self. Now, that there's a tension between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians is clear. In this letter, just to give you some context before we read the passage, uh, we learn that they've been ungracious about Paul's change of travel plans. We hear this in chapter one and two. We also learn that their feelings were hurt uh, because Paul wrote against some terrible things that they were doing, and so there were some hurt feelings, chapter two, but that also that some of them were actually grieved into repenting of the wrong that they were doing, chapter seven. And in chapter six, and again in chapter seven, the apostle Paul speaks warmly of his affection, for the church at Corinth, asking them to love him back. And quite frankly, it's unclear whether or not they do, in fact, love him back. It's all very personal. In, this, in the chapter before this one, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us, but you know, he, he talks to them because he's heard that people are actually. Uh, saying bad things about how he talks and about how he how he appears. Chapter 10, verse 10, for they say his, that is Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That's about the gentlest way that you can tell people that you've heard that people think that you're a wimp, that you're pathetic. And we also learn in 2 Corinthians that there's a conflict about money, as there, often is, as there often is. Well, the Corinthians say, Paul doesn't want our money, he says in chapter 11, verse 7, that he preaches the gospel to them free of charge. He says he doesn't want our money, but then he sure asks for money in chapters 8 and 9. He asks for them To give an offering to uh, poor churches. Well, what's going on here? I think if you're a well-to-do Corinthian, and if you're a well-to-do Silomer or Fayettevillian, then let's ask ourselves, what do we want in a teacher? What do we want in a teacher? Well, uh, he should have polished speech, a commanding presence, Get the immediate respect of your friends and co-workers, even your friends outside the church. You don't want him in the marketplace working with his hands, his hands, and people going, oh, is that your teacher, the tent maker over there? No, 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 no. You want him in his study, crafting elegant sermons. Or maybe attending nice, lavish dinners, you know, really mingling well in your social circle. Needless to say, Paul did not fit the Corinthians' expectations for a great teacher. He's not a great speaker, he doesn't have an imposing physical appearance, and they want to pay him a salary to get him out of the marketplace, but he refuses. He refuses, and yet then he asks them to give them money for other churches. What's going on here, Paul? You don't take our money and it's socially embarrassing for us, and then you come back and ask for money? What, so you can embarrass some other church? There's real tension here. Now, to be fair to Paul, um, in in chapters 8 and 9, he's not asking for money for himself. And instead, he's simply reminding the Corinthians that they need to pony up the cash that they had promised. They began a great work with fanfare and, yes, we're going to give this money. And then they didn't finish it. But needless to say, let's be clear. There's real conflict here, and that's the background of the passage before us. So now let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 33. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall. And escaped his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever. We pray that you would open our hearts by your Holy Spirit to see truth from your word. That you'd convict us of our, of our sins. And that you would give us joy and repentance. And that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, be glorified in what we study now. For the sake of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, I want to consider the passage uh, tonight by asking two questions. The first is, why does Paul bother to defend himself? And the second is, how does he do it? So why does he bother and how does he do it? Well, I mean, first of all, why does Paul even bother? Why does it even matter to him whether they have a high view of him or not? I mean, I mentioned that in chapter 10, verse 10, Paul recognizes that some people are calling him a wimp, but I didn't mention his response. He says in verse 11 of chapter 10, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Well, what's going on here? Is this an Auburn fan trash talking, an Alabama fan, or someone from the Ohio State University commenting on the University of Michigan football program? Have the Corinthians gotten under Paul's skin so much that he has to give them, as we would say, a piece of his mind? No. There are greater forces at play here. And I can put it in a sentence. Paul defends his ministry in order to defend the message, not to defend the messenger. It's the message that concerns Paul. In verses four to six of chapter 11, Paul recognizes the the, uh, possibility that he's less eloquent than the so-called super apostles. These people who have come in and amongst the Corinthians, presumably taken money from them, and are everything that he's not, imposing in presence, smooth talkers. And Paul says, Sure, quite possibly, they are more eloquent than I am. But there's a danger in the Corinthian delight in smooth speech. The danger is that they will accept a different message than the true message of redemption in Christ Jesus. Sure, these false teachers will use the same vocabulary. They will talk about God. They will even mention Jesus. But they will not talk about being rescued from hell forever by the punishment of Jesus in our place. And so Paul calls on them in uh, chapter 13... He calls on them, chapter 13, verse 5, and says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And I think that there's the real possibility that Paul thinks that when people think about where they are with Jesus, they'll go, you know what? I don't believe the gospel. I've never trusted in Christ. I've been Uh, enjoying these smooth talkers who really have some nice, entertaining messages. But I don't believe the message of redemption. I'm often surprised today when you ask people why they enjoy or they love the church that they're attending. And people regularly say, uh, I've heard people say, I just love the community. And you know, saying that you love your church community is kind of like a politician saying, I'm doing this for the kids. Who can object? But it really does matter what your community believes. I have thought of responding to that by saying, what biblical truths so unite, you, so unite you as a community that makes you love the community so much? And if the answer is, Well, they're not really. We just kind of like each other. Well, then you're not a church. You're a social club, right? You're you're happily interacting with people, but it's not on the gospel. And in this congregation, we ought to be, in a weird way, delighted when people rub us the wrong way. Because we're from different backgrounds. We have different interests. And yet we are united, I hope, by the gospel. So disagreement and squabbling in the church is because we're crossing social classes. We're crossing activities and interests and backgrounds. And that's a wonderful thing. And notice that the apostle Paul is willing, for the sake of Jesus... To receive scorn from those who are more eloquent, more sophisticated, or whatever. And I encourage us as a congregation to do the same. Let us defend the ministry of this church not because um, we're concerned about uh, our reputations, but because we're concerned about the message of redemption in Jesus. And we may not become the oh-so-popular church. We may grow at a slower rate than we hope and pray, but let's stay faithful to the message delivered once for all to the saints. So that's the first point. Defend the message. Focus on the message. But that's only half the sermon. Now let's talk about how he does it. What does Paul do? In order to defend his ministry. How does he boast? Does he give him a long list. Of ministry successes. You know I had him roaring in Tulsa. Does he say big revival. Lots of numbers. No. But even though that's certainly. What most preachers would do today. That's not what the apostle Paul does. Don't believe me. There's a new handbook out. I'm tempted to mention it. It's a brand new published book. And I'm tempted to mention the title. But I'm going to refrain from doing so. Because I'm about to savage it. Um, <laughs> it, it comes in. At, at uh, just under 300 pages. So it's a thick book. Uh, and it provides an interesting insight. Into the air we breathe in this country. It's a, it's a book pitched to pastors. It's kind of a field guide to ministry. Now in this 300-page book, the word love occurs 38 times. The word money occurs 32 times. But the word suffer appears only once. And it's not because the pastor or anybody in the congregation is suffering. It's because there may be somebody else over there, way away, who's suffering, and that makes me doubt God's existence. So it's it's purely intellectual. Uh, the word conflict occurs six times. The word persecution, zero. No wonder then that the word gospel only occurs 14 times or the word hell, zero. Even the word cross occurs only three times. And it's never the cross of our Lord Jesus. It's only in sentences like we ought to engage in cross-cultural ministry. (laughs) Though hell gets short shrift and so does the cross of Christ, coffee gets mentioned five times. The book certainly knows its audience, doesn't it? It's not written for pastors in Pakistan or China or Syria or North Korea. It'd be very different, wouldn't it? Money wouldn't occur nearly as often, and there'd be a whole lot more talk of suffering. And and given that people in these countries die for the real gospel, for the message that we're rescued from hell by the punishment of Jesus in our place on the cross, I imagine that hell and the cross would occur more regularly in the handbook For North Korean pastors because they're willing to die for it and let's be honest Paul sounds more like a Syrian pastor than he does a pastor in the United States because after all in 2nd Corinthians 11 we see lots of suffering and no mention whatsoever of coffee So let's look through the passage together. Paul's being questioned about the authenticity of his ministry. And in response, he gives them a laundry list of suffering. Chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Paul receives punishment from the Jews. That's the 40 lashes less one. Paul also receives punishment from the Romans. The Romans would beat people with rods. Now, they wouldn't beat non-citizens, and Paul was a Roman citizen. But don't you worry. The uh, local centurion would make exceptions at times, bend the rules a little, and they certainly did in the case of a rabble-rouser like the Apostle Paul. Three times he was shipwrecked, verse 25, and he spent a night and a day at sea. In a landlocked country, uh, in a landlocked state, In an enormous country, we simply cannot fathom, simply cannot fathom the ancient fear of being adrift at sea. There were no rescue ships, no helicopters, no satellites, no radios, no one to look for you. And even in this day and age, we still lose people. Last year, at about this time, a 33-year-old Navy SEAL went missing off the coast of Hawaii, and even though the Navy, the Coast Guard, and everyone scoured 24,000 square miles, that's three times the state, the size of the state of Massachusetts, they could not even find his body to bring it home to his family. So in the ancient world, being adrift at sea is... Absolutely horrific. But just like an infomercial. Wait. There's more. Verses 26 to 29 catalog. The regular. Kind of everyday. The humdrum suffering of the Apostle Paul. There are all sorts of dangers to be met while traveling. He was cold. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was exhausted. And even when. There weren't people outside the church out to get him. There's always the danger, he says, of false brothers. People in the church who were stabbing him in the back. And I can't help but smiling, people like some of the Corinthians, right? They were some of the false brothers too. And genuine Christians, genuine Christians have problems. And Paul feels their struggles deeply. Verses 28 and 29. They hurt. And their, their shepherd hurts with them. They suffer. He suffers too. They, they fall in the face of temptation. And he is angry. And Paul even becomes. Verses 32 and 33. An enemy of the state. For the sake of the gospel. He's actually an enemy of the state. So take that, super apostles. They may, verse 20, lord it over the Corinthians. They may put on airs about themselves and lord it over everyone else. But Paul does just the opposite. He labors diligently to persuade them that he can go even lower than they think that he can go. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel chapter 6. When the ark of the Lord is making its way into Jerusalem and David, the anointed king of Israel, is ecstatic. He is so excited that the ark is coming to Jerusalem. He celebrates, he rejoices, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord. And then the Bible tells us he goes home to bless his household. His wife meets him at the door To explain just what she thinks about his dancing and shouting. And how he has so distinguished himself before the servant girls. And David says to his wife, who happens to be the previous king's daughter. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house. To appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. And then, do you remember what David says? He says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor I think the Apostle Paul is doing something very similar here in the passage before us. You think I'm weak? I'm even weaker than that. You think I'm disreputable? I've been punished by the Jews and the Romans. <laughs> You're worried I'm unlucky? Ha! I've been sh- shipwrecked three times. Don't get on a boat with me. And I've even been lost at sea. You want someone sophisticated and culturally respectable? I've often not had enough food to eat. Paul's opponents boast that they're wise. He says that he's foolish. Paul's opponents want someone who's strong. He boasts of his weakness. Why does he do it? Why is he, as he, as he says in this passage, why is he a better servant of Christ? Verse 23. It's because he stays on message. In chapter 4, verse 5, Paul tells the Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul knows and understands the Lord Jesus, and Paul knows that God can accomplish his purposes, not simply through the triumph of his servants, but also through their suffering, just like the sufferings of our dear Lord Jesus. And for such a great Savior, and for such a great message, Paul is willing to suffer. He's willing to be humiliated and hungry. In Second Corinthians chapter 12, you can look down. Uh, Paul tells us why. Verse 9 of chapter 12. But he, that is the Lord, said to me, his so-called boasts in his sufferings because he glories in, he rejoices in, and he knows the power of God that rests on suffering people. It's not about Paul. It's about Jesus. So in conclusion, how can we respond? I think we can do so in two ways. First, If people criticize us, let's consider standing down. Let's consider boasting in our weaknesses. You can take any area of my life and you can criticize it. I'm not encouraging this, but it's just it's possible. And if you do so, I'm probably going to somehow try to mitigate the criticism, give some explanation. This is how it happened. Um, You know, you criticize the way I handle my finances and I try to explain the good things that I do and kind of hide the bad things that I do. But wouldn't it be more refreshing just to say, well, you know what, you're right. And it's even worse than you think. And isn't it funny how people who freely admit their faults, how we find that so refreshing, Would that we would find it refreshing in ourselves, right? It's always pleasant when other people do it, but it's harder to to do it yourself. We have a tendency in our culture, uh, and and why are we doing it? What are we modeling to people when we boast in our weaknesses? We're showing that we trust in the grace of God. God loves us in spite of our weaknesses. He loves us in spite of our sin, So not simply our finite fumblings, but our downright wickedness. We have a tendency in our culture to think that grace is saying that what's really wrong isn't that bad after all. But that's not what grace is. Grace is kindness in the face of genuine wrongdoing. You know, it was a great help to me. It was a great help to our marriage. That Catherine knew that when she was marrying me, She was marrying a sinner. My sin doesn't surprise her. And her sin, yeah, she doesn't, doesn't surprise me. That's just who we are. And can we be willing as a congregation to stand down? Not to escalate in the boasting, but just to admit defeat. Not necessarily defeat in the face of another sinner, but certainly defeat in front of God's righteous, holy, and perfect standards. Doing so is not humiliating. On the contrary, it's really freeing. It's liberating. Yeah, I'm all messed up. But he loves me. He loves me. So let's stand down. Second... Um, the, uh, when we're unconcerned about boasting in ourselves... We can really and truly focus on boasting in the Lord. We can really and truly think about what matters as a congregation. There are many things. There are many things that we'll think about as being important. And they are. They are to some degree. But I tend to obsess in the small things. And forget the big picture. The message of rescue in Jesus. We can glory in sins forgiven. And that's a wonderful thing. And so we don't have to sweat the small details because we've been set free. The uh, story is told about Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, who toured a prison. So the king is touring the prison, and he had uh, the power to set any prisoner free. So Frederick the Great is touring the prison, and... uh, Prisoner after prisoner said, Oh, oh King, oh, King, I was, it was a terrible mistake. A grave miscarriage of justice put me in here. And, oh, King, I, I, please set me free. Make everything right. I, I didn't do the wrong of which I was accused. And, you know, I can imagine this is, is wearying for the King because cell after cell, prisoner after prisoner, all mitigating circumstances, all uh, and to a man, everyone was innocent except the king came upon one particular prisoner and asked him why are you in prison uh, why, why are you in prison prisoner said armed robbery and the king i imagine the story is true that he sighed deeply at this point knowing what was coming asked whether or not the punishment Uh, the, The prisoner was, in fact, guilty of the crime. Well, did you do the armed robbery? Yes, indeed, Your Majesty, was the answer. And the prisoner, so the story goes, even affirmed that the sentence was just. It was right for him to be in prison for just the length of time that he'd been sentenced. Well... Frederick responded by immediately calling the warden and saying, I want you to take this man out of my prison immediately. I will not have such a wicked and corrupt man corrupt all of these innocent people here. You must take him out. And there's something wonderfully refreshing about admitting Failure, isn't there? Something wonderfully liberating. Finally, we need to remember that what we're doing here tonight is not gathering together with people that we like, simply so that we can lounge. Now, of course, I do hope that we like each other, and I hope that we're resting on the Lord's Sabbath before the week begins. But that's not why we're here. We're here to worship the Lord Jesus. We're here because Jesus died for us and was raised again. And now we live in, he- in him. And we're here because there's a table of bread and wine before us. A visible reminder of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus which he gave for us, and by which he feeds us. So, if you don't like the preacher's outfit tonight, if you're unhappy with the service sheet, or you don't like the way that we serve communion, i got something to tell you. It's even worse than you think. Look at me, I'm disheveled, unkempt, I have scuffs on my shoes. This is just a, a sheet of paper that's folded in half. You know, sometimes in communion we have this awkward pile-up. Is he with him? I'm not, I don't know. Is that his kid? But guess what? It doesn't matter. That's not why we're here. Let's not sweat the details. Let's rejoice in the rescue That we have in Jesus. Let's remember, as the Lord said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness, because there's a whole lot of weakness in this room, including me speaking. Lord, we need you. We need you to rescue us from ourselves. We need you to lift our eyes up to the heavens. We need you to work in our hearts powerfully and wonderfully. Lord, we pray that the uh, thorns of this life would uh, not choke us as we grow in love for you. That we would flourish under your heavenly care. Lord, thank you that you direct all things by your wisdom and might and power. And you do it with great love and affection for us. May we rest in your love and may we boast in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.